This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Holding back students a grade is seen by many as a way to uphold rigorous academic standards, but it can also backfire. Our teachers discuss how. Plus, we thought after this spring's rallies that teens were going to be a voting force in this year's midterms. Does that still hold truth three weeks from Election Day? Finally, Dear Abby gives some bad advice when it comes to baby names that has our teachers shaking their heads. Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a pair of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? Hi there. I teach high school English. And David Muhammad also joins us. What do you teach, David? Teach high school international relations, economics, and U.S. history. A couple of big public service announcements before we dive into our first topic, and I think you as our teacher listeners are going to want to hear these. First, No Wrong Answers now has a website. It's nowronganswerspodcast.com. You can go there, listen to past episodes, listen to the latest episode, and most importantly, at our website right now, you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which we have launched called the Friday Cheat Sheet. It's a chance for you hardworking teachers and educators to start unwinding from your week and get your weekend started off right. This Friday Cheat Sheet comes to your inbox early on Friday afternoons, probably just as you're finishing up your day with kids. And once the final bell rings, you can take a deep breath, sit down, open your email, and open the cheat sheet. It's a quick overview of some of the interesting and sometimes offbeat education stories that catch our eye during the week and that we often talk about on this podcast. It also gives you a chance to weigh in on the topics our teachers are going to be talking about on the upcoming episode. We want to hear from you and get your voice involved in our discussions. Go to NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter right now. The second announcement also for listeners in the Kansas City area, No Wrong Answers is hosting a special happy hour just for our listeners. It will be Thursday, November 15th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Beer Station along Gregory Boulevard in Kansas City's Waldo neighborhood. It's a chance for educators to gather and talk about their work and lives, share stories from the classroom, or just relax and get a beer and take uh, some time away from lesson planning and grading. Beer Station will be offering happy hour specials just for our No Wrong Answers crowd. Again, Thursday, November 15th at Beer Station in Kansas City from 5 to 7 p.m. Come yourself, bring a colleague. You can find out more at No Wrong Answers Facebook page. Well, let's get to our first topic. It's one of the hardest questions educators may face in their careers. Should a struggling student be held back a grade? Arguments for taking such a drastic step have been part and parcel of the education reform movement in this country for years now. The thinking goes that holding a student back upholds rigorous academic standards and also avoids the risk of having students fall further and further behind as they get pushed up the chain. Yet, growing evidence suggests that holding students back could backfire in a big way. New data out of both Louisiana and New York City show that holding students back in middle school increases the chances that those students will later drop out in high school. So we wanted to talk to our teachers, both of whom are high school teachers, and kind of get their thinking on on how this works and the real-world consequences, both good and bad, of holding students back. So do you have students who have previously in their academic careers, whether it be in middle school or 
or earlier, they were held back so they are older than their peers? Yeah, I have. I've had that experience. Yeah, and what's that like? Unhealthy. The social impact that it makes on that student and the environment is very heavy. I mean, we have to recognize, like anybody at any age group, we want to fit in, we want to feel like we belong. And at that age, everybody knows everybody. You know, it's very obvious when the kid is a couple years older and that at that age level, it feels like five to ten years older, you know, sometimes. And they're emotionally, you know, um, detached. They feel a chip on their shoulder. You see the males be the ones who it, it's happened to. Um, and so a lot of times they have this ego complex where they feel like they need to prove something or they're just so clocked out that they're not going to do much for you. Yeah. They, or they feel like, I've already done this or I already know this or, well, if I'm here anyway, I might as well cause a scene. Right, they climb you know. around. Yeah, yeah they, you know, I've, I've had maybe one instance where a kid was transferring in from another district and they were older and they had to take the class. That's different. But when they've been forced to repeat... It's been very unhealthy, and it's changed my philosophy on— I used to kind of believe in holding kids back, but my philosophy has changed a lot, especially since my daughter started school at a Montessori, mm-hmm. but I could talk about that some more later. Yeah, right. um, I, I do want to hear about that. That is a good entree into to some of the research that I had alluded to earlier. So the Rand Corporation looked at middle school students in New York City between the years 2004 and 2012, and uh, they did something interesting to try to pinpoint uh, this effect of holding back kids. Um, During this time period, kids who were retained were retained in New York City largely for their performance on standardized tests. So the researchers compared students who missed the testing cutoff scores and were presumably held back and compared them with those students who barely outscored the cutoff. So you're looking at two groups of kids who are fairly similar in terms of academic performance, but they are differentiated just by this, this cutoff score. So some were passed on and some were not. And what they found out was the kids who failed the test and were held back were more likely later on to drop out mm-hmm. in high school. And this was specific to middle school. So are talking about kids who were held back in middle school, not elementary school. And I, I think maybe, David, what you're saying it, it answers the question that I was going to ask is why might this be the case? What, what's it like for kids who are, have made it to high school, but they are they are a year older. They have this kind of, I, I guess, stigma uh, of being older, being different from their peers, being set off in that way. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the middle school environment, right, like let's say you, in most districts, it's six, seven, and eight. The seventh graders know who the eighth graders are, right? The sixth graders know who the seventh graders are. So when you get, you hold a kid back and they're still in that same school environment, everybody knows, it's very obvious, you know, and you can't escape it. Yeah. And now that kid is left with either doing something that very few people can do, own up to the fact that they failed something, and just admit, hey, I got to do better, which I'm not going to ask a 12-year-old to do that. I don't expect that to happen. Or I'm going to just clown around. I'm going to make a scene. I'm going to show you that I don't care, which I do, you know, mm-hmm. and really make it very obvious that you don't mess with me, mm-hmm. don't make fun of me, don't pick at me. You know, or you yeah. see the opposite where a kid just completely becomes introverted and just shuts off the world. Right. Yeah. And, and and both of those are going to be responses that kids would give because they want to control something. And that's right. the way that they actually can show the control because yeah. that was taken away from them when they right. were when they were held back. Well, and the, what's the flip side, though? Because, the, I mean, I think you, you often hear teachers and educators decry what's called social promotion, right? Where you just you're you know, a kid may not be academically ready to go to the next grade. But you want to avoid this situation right. of, of, of having them be in a grade level where they're a year older than everyone, so you socially promote them because they're in that social group, they're in that age group. Is that just as bad or com- compare those two evils? <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of sticky because, uh, you know, we're always told that schools are, I mean, we're in loco parentis. And so 
we are to be the parents while the parents are away. Mm. And a parent's job is to be much more than just to teach a child to be academic. We're constantly told, and, and even more now, right, in this current environment, that we need to teach the whole child. And we really need to, to help grow good citizens as well as, as really good critical thinkers. And I was thinking about this and, and comparing it to, like, well, other kinds of, of tests. And I was thinking, well, the driver's test is the driver's test. And it's like if a kid doesn't pass the driver's test, the kid's not going to get the driver's license because, like, the consequences are dire when you're you're handling a, a, a machine. And, you know, the ACT test is, is what it is in terms of there's a cutoff and, and you get to go and then you don't. And then I was thinking, well, how is that different from what we're doing? And, and then I was thinking when David was talking, it's that it has something to do with being in the same environment because kids do know. I mean, like, no matter how big or little the school is, I mean, you, you know, and that shame is with you because those kids knew that they're going on and you're not or whatever. And, and there's something different about that that's not like having a driver's license and it's not like passing your ACT. So you, so in the end, you're saying social promotion, if, if that's the euphemism we want to use, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen, I've, I think it could be detrimental. I mean, of course, my district used to, at least in middle school, it still might be this case, there is no such thing as failing. You can fail every class and you get passed on to the next grade. You can still walk at graduation time. Like, and- like literally like, a kid can get all Fs in seventh grade, and they're still going to be an eighth grader the next year. Yeah. Because the grades don't count. We've been told that. Yeah. And the kids figure it out really fast. And so I, there, for here. a while, there was no concept of late work. There was no homework. Like, So don't let me get on that. <laughs> but it's changed my philosophy on teaching. You know, I think the consequences are healthy. But at least in a district of the size of mine, I, I kind of see now, like, like my daughter goes to a Montessori school. I, I used to be very skeptical of the Montessori style. But what it essentially is is that wherever you are for certain subjects is where you are. So if she's excelling in science, then she gets pushed further in science. But if she still needs work on math at a certain grade level, that's where she stays until she develops those skills. And I think that's very healthy for kids to recognize, hey, it's not that you, you know, as you failed your entire seventh grade year. I'm sure there's something in there that you do well. Right. Uh And maybe these things you need more work on, but you keep moving forward as we strengthen these tools. And I think that's where, of course, you can't employ the Montessori style with a school of 2000 kids. I think it'd be too difficult. You'd have to have too many resources. But credit recovery is a very good option. I think the idea of, okay, this is somewhere that you slip. But as you move forward, these are other areas that you've progressed in. We're going to kind of come up the back end. It seems like both of you are saying that these these types of intermediary steps like credit recovery or summer school, your, your school used to have it, Luann, these, these steps that where a critic might say, oh, these are just, we're just trying to put Band-Aids on this problem that's not really getting fixed. We're not really truly holding these kids to rigorous academic standards. In fact, you, you think those types of steps are are helpful. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. I think summer school, it it depends on how well it's done. I think credit recovery, if you have the right instructors doing it and the right intent and the right curriculum guidelines, then it can work very well. The the reality is is that these kids, if we're talking about teaching the whole child, these kids are going into society regardless. Mm -hmm. Whether they drop out, whether they graduate, barely, whether they go into college, at some point they're going to be members of society. And so we are going to be graduating them at some point to something. And what we do for them 
we do the best that we can. Mm-hmm. You know, you do the best that you can. There's been kids who've passed my class by the skin of their teeth. Did they really know the content? Maybe not, mm-hmm. but I hope they caught something from there. And there's been times where I passed, and I was like, ugh, that was a tough one. And if you ask me what I learned, I don't know, right? But it's it's bigger than that, I think, because these schools are the community. They're a community yeah. aspect. And so when you, we don't want to turn this into the prison pipeline where Absolutely. we're smashing these kids over the head because they made a mistake or because they were at a stage of their life where maybe they were going through something. Yeah, Luann, what yeah. you going to say? Well, I mean, just, I mean, to be fair, I, I will add, um, <laughs> I mean, David and I both teach at schools that are fairly affluent and mm-hmm. the diversity among the students is not as much as other schools that would be in our metro area. And so given that, our parents are not going to, you know what I mean? They're not really going to deal with the whole held back issue. And so then that becomes uh, an arm wrestling with the administration. And it really it really has nothing to do with the teacher at that point. Right, right. Uh, Well, Luann, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I did want to actually highlight how race does play a part in holding back. There is also some research out of, of Louisiana um, studying students between the years 1999 and 2005. And, and that research from Louisiana showed that high school dropout rates were higher for students who had been held back in either fourth or eighth grades. The effects of being held back uh, disproportionately in both the research that I've cited, Louisiana and New York City, disproportionately affect children of color. So in Louisiana, 85% of the students held back in the span that the study looked at were black, 85%, though they made up less than half of Louisiana's student population. In New York City, uh, in the years that that study went, black students were twice as likely to be held back than white students with similar scores. So even like in New York City, a white student with a similar score might not be would be held back at half the rate uh, of a black student. And you both work in districts that are affluent, mostly yeah. white. Mm-hmm. Um, your student populations are mostly white. Uh, and, and you're admitting right here, right, that that, that makes it, that makes it harder fear to, of litigation. To, to, to hold hold kids back. Yeah, fear of litigation is is present for sure. I mean. Absolutely, and I, but and I'll say within my district, even though we are fairly affluent, at least in my school, but in the district, the behavioral punishments hit the kids of color way faster. Yes, and holding and being held back is being, kind of like a behavioral punishment. It's an academic held, punishment, but yeah. it's being held back, suspensions, expulsion much quicker to the kids of color in my district than none. This is still a society that sees young black males as a threat. You know, th- then that those that group of students develop a chip on their shoulder like, well, I don't care because y'all don't care. And there's nobody in the buildings that look like them or talk to mm-hmm. them that comes from their experience. And so they get it in their mind like, this is how it's supposed to be. You know, I'm not going to make it no way or... You know, I mean, it's really one step away from being locked up, you yeah. know, and you look at the statistics, one in three black men are going to do prison, mm-hmm. you know, and so I think that um, it's kind of ingrained, sadly, but it's the reality. And I know my share of, I mean, I have share of students who are, well, entitled to, to say it straight and a bit lazy because things have always come easy to them mm-hmm. and mom and dad have always taken care of everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the district doesn't, the schools don't want to deal with that parent who's, gonna go tooth and nail if you try to fail their child so they'll give us little hints of like and and parents of color don't push back as much they They don't have the resources they don't have the resources or the wherewithal there's a fear of authority absolutely there's the mindset that 
they don't even think about going in and talking to the principal. I've had to talk to some, some parents before, like, hey, it's okay to call the principal and talk. Because they see that person like an authority figure, like a police officer. And, like, once the decision's been made, the decision's been made. The There's no negotiation. Made. Oh, my child's just got to deal with it. Or mom works nights and the dad's not around. And so, like, when's she going to, you know, she's using the daytime to rest. Our school's PTA meetings are at 9 a.m. It baffles me. Cause, why? Because we have so many stay-at-home moms. Wow. Right. So like that cuts off that population of a few parents who can't do that, you know, and and so they don't even understand the resources they have at their at their hands to, to do that. And so then Johnny slips through the cracks. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. On this podcast back in the spring, several times we talked about American students' increased political engagement. Our teachers, like teachers around the country, worked at schools that experienced student-led rallies and walkouts following this spring's school shootings, most notably the one in Parkland, Florida. On No Wrong Answers, we also talked to students who said they felt more energy, enthusiasm, and a sense of activism related to politics and elections, particularly around gun issues. And there was a sense that maybe something had shifted, that teenagers were, in fact, going to be a force in this year's midterm elections. Well, fast forward to now. Is a young voter wave coming? Well, the evidence is mixed. The New York Times did report on an apparent surge in young voter registrations over the summer, coinciding with a national bus tour of survivors-turned-activists from Parkland. Yet more recently, a Washington Post analysis of eight battleground states showed that young voters aged 18 to 29, their share of voter registrations had barely budged, going up in average in those battleground states of just 0.6%. We are uh, taping this on a Sunday, three weeks before Election Day, and we wanted to um, ask our high school teachers here on this panel, Luanne and David, whether they see any kind of energy or interest in the midterm elections. This could be uh, a long conversation. This could be a very short conversation. <laughs> I don't know what how your students are feeling. Uh, but I'll just ask straight away, do you get a sense that your kids in general care about this coming election? I do. I hope that they will get out and, and register. Like all kids, when you've got to do something outside of, you know, normal and you've got to actually like spend some effort to do that and you don't have your parents on you, you know, hammering it or something, right, then it doesn't get done. And um, kids registering to vote might might fall into that. So it's like they kind of care, but then doing the whole like, oh, I've got to actually like take an extra step. Uh, one thing I'd be interested in talking to if this gives birth to this later would be just the what it is like to make registration easier for kids. I mean, I've just was listening to NPR earlier in the week and there are some states that pre-register their kids when when they get their driver's licenses and that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, so just changes in voter registration itself would be, I think, worth a discussion. Um, David, how are your kids feeling? Well, I have a theory too, Kyle, so I'll get to that. (laughs) I have a theory on this whole situation, but uh, the kid, some, the kid, the same kids who've always been interested are interested, and the rest don't care. But I have my theories on why this is, and I felt this way for a while. May okay. I? Sh- yeah, may yeah, I, sh- I want to lay, hear. Lay your theory on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kids are full of it, man, <laughs> and I was too. You know, oh my God, that's this, this is your, that's <laughs> this is your great theory. <laughs> but I'm gonna break it down. I'm that's break- everything right there. <laughs> it it feels and looks good to show that you care. When the Parkland situation happened. I'm not diminishing its seriousness by any means. But all the energy of going to a rally, you know, making posters and all that, 
it felt good. It looked good. But my whole th- the whole time I was saying, will they keep it up? They had the, the pulse of the nation. Everybody was watching. And I said, but they got to realize that this is not going to be fixed in a year, in two years. Even with mm-hmm. the energy around President Trump and all of this, I think some kids, they got excited, and then it's like they set. They don't recognize that it takes grind, the grind work of standing in a line and voting. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of kids don't recognize th- that rigor of what it's going to take to day in and day out. You're saying what we saw in the spring, uh, in this theory of yours, what we, <laughs> what we saw in the spring was was more, um, f- maybe for a lot of kids, was more performative, right? Like you, it's, you, a, it's the social aspect. Yeah. And I think, one, I think that we should have voter voting at schools. I think our schools should be housing grounds for them so that they can have okay. access to it. it we, we have to make it look like a social movement, but it's a social movement that individuals go do one by one. They could go to the rally because they're in this mass wave, mm-hmm. right? I think unless we can do it where the kids are all on a bus or whatever and going to vote together like a field trip, right? And now, okay, whoever wants to go vote, we're going to, and we say it over the intercom, you know, on November 9th, November 6th, you know, get registered by this point and we're going to all take buses of kids over. Now they'll be part of that social movement. But if they have to do it as an individual, right. they, they haven't felt that empowerment yeah. yet. Interesting. Luann, you look like you have a well, thought. Well, I will want to round out the edges just a little bit from what David was saying um, because in the last year and a half at my own school, I mean, in my district's different from his as well, but in my own school, there were two incidences of guns brought to school in different Mm. semesters. Mm. So my students will feel that more closely. Mm. These incidences are not out of memory at all. Mm. And so I think my students feel a little bit more galvanized because... Well, because they're fearful, and I uh, he- hesitate to say this, but I-, I wouldn't be shocked if it's a when this comes to our metro area about gun violence. And I think our kids grow up under the auspices of knowing that this is palpable at this point. And you, I don't, and you still see that the, the gun control issue is really being like, the, the from at least from your students' perspective, as the main motivating political or, or, or yeah. poli- policy area. Yeah, and I just, and a part of me feels just sorry for them a little bit. I mean, and sorry for myself as well, but I mean, I just think being 17 and 18 is like literally hard enough. I mean, I remember what it was like. I didn't have parents who had gone to college, so I did not have a safe way to navigate college. I had to do a lot of that myself. So I remember the stress of just trying to figure all that out. And I think our kids grow up under that kind of stress of like competing with each other and competing for the scholarships and the honors and all that kind of stuff and the clubs and the resume and the this and the that. And growing up and knowing that like, I understand Parkland, man, I was right there. It was so the the man the the march and in, in the march in march you know was was so wonderful and and empowering and everything but my gosh think of all the things that have happened since march right. and if you're 17 and every day is like i'm sorry but brutal because you're you've got the Kavanaugh hearings right. and you've got this you're and you've got that and then, and you've got a friend who's who's afraid of being deported and i mean it's just like I've never had to grow right. up with that, and so They're I just exhausted. I can't, socially, exactly it's just exhausted. right. Yeah, uh, I will say politics as it stands now is not particularly representative of young people. I mean, it never has been. You could argue, but now even more so. Time magazine points out that voters eighteen to twenty nine voted against President Trump in twenty sixteen by a twenty point margin 
Congress is getting older. Right. Uh, it has a median age. Uh, Congress members' median age right now uh, has gone up nearly a decade since 1981. So the average member of the House is now 58 years old, and the mm. average senator is 61 years old. Mm. Um, so I get it. Like, if teenagers don't care about what's happening in Washington because who they see in Washington is, is really – really unrepresentative of them. And of course, you're not going to have a 20-year-old a senator because of the age limits in the Constitution, but even like a 30-year-old or, or a 35-year-old senator. Um, I guess, are you trying to, do you feel the responsibility to get your students engaged or interested in electoral politics? I wish I did. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and lie. And I'm a social studies teacher. It's, I just haven't, I'm bombarded with all the other stuff. I don't know. I think a lot of teachers are, feel overwhelmed themselves with curriculum and other things. And I mean, I'm, I'm, Luann probably does a better job than myself, but I think well, you do what I, I haven't done as much as I should. I, I will say, and this is so interesting because like right now, like today, presently, my students are actually working on an essay that they've got to come to school with on Monday. And it's basically a response to a paragraph that Thomas Paine wrote from the rights of man and uh, basically in the rights of man in this paragraph, he's saying that America is great in 1791. And he's talking about how wonderful it is to be in America because it's amazing that a place that has so many disparate groups of people, they come together and there's this cordial unison, he writes. And and, and there's like hardly any problems, he says, in gen- you know, there's taxes are few, the government is just, the poor are not oppressed, the rich are not privileged. These are almost direct quotes. And he says, there's nothing absolute, right, to engender riots and tumults. And you think like this is so fruitful for them to be able to write about in 2018 as they are products of now. And that's what the prompt is about, is what the man wrote about in 1791, true today, and to what extent. And instead of really firing these kids up, they're a little frightened of it. And we mm-hmm. had to have a discussion about that. And I said, you know, you're living this right now. And I said, let me just take a wild guess. You all are afraid to show politics, right, in your writing. And they're nodding. And I said, you know, the the college board is not asking you for this, but they want to know that you can be politically aware. Mm -hmm. And you need to be politically aware because that is what it means to be a good citizen. You say they they were afraid to express like a political viewpoint. I am the one in the classroom that's like pushing. It's like, what do we see? I mean, are there riots and tumults today? Are are the rich uh, privileged? Are the poor oppressed? And it's like, to what extent can you define it? And that kind of thing. And they need to be able to discuss it. And they're like, I think these kids don't want to politically rile each other up. But what I'm trying to explain is they've got, they're called on to express these views right, wrong, or indifferent, it doesn't matter. I want to know how well they express themselves, not what it is that they're going to say, but they got to put up. And it's like, how do I, that's what I'm doing. I'm pushing these kids to do that. Uh, We'll get to our final topic uh, right now. Dear Abby advice columnist Jeannie Phillips, and yes, Dear Abby is still a thing, has been taking heat for a recent column, a person, presumably a man, but um, maybe not so, but but writing about his or her wife, uh, wrote Dear Abby saying that his wife, who is from India, was insisting that their soon-to-be child be given an Indian name. The letter writer thought this was a not so good idea. He wrote a traditional Western name, maybe more suitable for living in the U.S. because having an unusual name, as the letter writer put it, can make life difficult for kids. And so Jeannie Phillips, writing as Dear Abby, she still uses the same pen name as as her mother, Pauline Phillips, who's the original Dear Abby, responded, agreeing with the letter writer. Here's an excerpt of what Phillips wrote. Not only can foreign names be difficult to pronounce and spell, but they can also cause a child to be teased unmercifully. Sometimes the name can be 
a problematic word in the English language, and one that sounds beautiful in a foreign language can be grating in English. I hope your wife will rethink this. Why saddle a kid with a name he or she will have to explain or correct with friends, teachers, and fellow employees from childhood into adulthood? That is advice that dear Abby gave. I should say right off the bat, I have some some personal stake in this topic. My wife is Indian. She uh, wanted our son. She insisted that our son have an Indian name. Uh, and his name is Dev, which is not the, the hardest name in the world to get if you're white. Um, it's, it's short for Dev Din with a D in the middle. So often people mistake it for Devin. It's kind of annoying, but... Uh, my wife and I like the name and we think it's worth it. So uh, this story, I should say, struck a chord with me. And I guess I find Dear Abby's advice problematic in a number of ways, but, but mainly because it just seems to put the onus on the kids with the unusual names and their parents and assumes no sense of responsibility on the part of other people who are trying to learn the name. Mm-hmm. So I guess as teachers, you have to learn dozens, if not hundreds of new names every year. And going back to my experience as a teacher, I mean, people, individuals like their name. <laughs> you know, I mean, like individual that's... So I, I guess just what, what do you think about this whole... F- this whole fiasco. <laughs> well, I'm going to paraphrase and, and plagiarize from some other Twitter response about this that I know that I've seen. And, and it goes something like this. You know, my parent, my immigrant parents didn't travel all these miles so that a name would sound easier in your mouth. Right. I mean, that's like that's and that just that just does that for me. It's just that kind of like that's really not their responsibility to have the name sound easier in somebody else's mouth. So that's one thing. The idea that, like, a kid could be teased for his name, okay? And then there's a difference between teasing and and bullying, and I believe in that, right? Teasing, you know, it's how kids learn how to be social with each other. And what kid has not been teased, right? So for us to really learn the difference between teasing and bullying, I think, would be good because I think that line has been really been blurred. Kids have been teased. My last name is Fox. You don't think I was teased? There has to be a certain sort of resiliency. You have to own who you are, right? I mean, like, I have to own that I'm a white girl, right? I have to own that I'm 5'9", and I just, I just have to I own that I'm from Iowa originally. I mean, I have to, like, own these things about me. And if I go through a spate where I don't feel so prideful about who I am, but then I can learn to have pride later, I mean, that's that's a good lesson to actually learn. Yeah, well, David Muhammad. Yeah, David <laughs> Abdullah Muhammad, by that means. Uh, yeah, I, I'm biased on this because I come from a background where my father, he was born with one name, and when he joined the Nation of Islam, he removed his last name, turned it to an X, and then he changed that to Muhammad, you know, and, and so when I go places, people don't know what I am. They see my name, and they're like, okay, and then they see me, and they're like, oh, okay, what's going on here, you know? And I have pride in it. I think the names are beautiful. I think that people grow into their names. And and for us to tell somebody they shouldn't have a name is a sign of racism, is a sign of, you know, implicit bias. Because we've, you know, it's just like we've we've seen the statistics of when a certain names are on job, you know, applications, that those people get segregated against or viewed as not being as smart. And you make fun of the girl Ladasha and the dashes in the middle of her name. But you know what? Like, that's what that's what makes her who she is. For us to even consider telling somebody they shouldn't name their child, that is just absurd and it's disrespectful. As teachers, how important is is a kid's name to that kid? Like, I mean, I, I guess you have to learn their names. I mean, how, how important is it, I guess, in just building relationships and building rapport with kids that you learn a kid's name, that you learn how to pronounce it and spell it? Students in high school already come to me 
with a name that they want. Like for instance, I'll mm. I'll have a name and, and and the kid will say, but I go by this. Like right. I go by like Tyson. It's not, their, it's not their given name. They want no. you to call them by something right. else. Right. And they're Asian students and they're Indian students by and large and some African American students, but that is a thing that they must have learned in primary and and middle school where they're just like, I'm just going to circumvent any kind of teasing because you're just going to call me that white name that would be easier in your mouth so anyway. So they, they they give you like so they will they're, tell they're, me. They're, their name is Adichie, but say, call me Charlie. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's Absolutely. a name that they've adopted for themselves. And because, I don't know, I've just started out on that relationship with them when I'm trying to learn. I don't I don't pry and feel like, well, is that what you is that what you want or is that what you think would be good? I just I just kind of passively go along and do that. So yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen that. I've also seen, you know, nowadays with the kids who are maybe transgender or whatever else may have you. Names can be very important. Like, hey, I go by this name now. And so it is important as a teacher to try to learn what kids want to be called because that is a connection point. You know, if I have a kid who at one point of the year identifies as this and now they identify as that, that really means probably quite a bit to them, especially if they're letting that be known socially. On another hand, too, names could be great because I I have several situations where a kid who I assume was just another white student, but their last name was Espinosa, and I said, hmm. So when I got a little more comfortable with him, I said, you know, your last name is Espinosa. Where'd you get that name from? And then that opens up a whole different line of communication for them to go ask their parents about their culture or whatever else may have you. Or they say, yeah, actually, my father is full Mexican. And they don't look, you know, and so I think that there's there's stories in names, there's culture in names, there's beauty in these names. And um, sometimes you can figure out things like, oh, okay, that's, that's a, that sounds like a Polish name. Wow, did you know that that was, you know, and then they go ask questions and they come back and it makes them feel like you actually care about them. If that's the case, we might as well just give kids numbers. If names weren't important, we just give kids numbers. Hey, number six, turn in your assignment. Well, before we get to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eyes recently. It's time for the headlines. More than a year after white supremacists rallied in Charlottesville, a new report from the New York Times and ProPublica shows the city's schools are still struggling with some of the widest racial academic achievement gaps in the nation. White students in Charlottesville are roughly four times more likely than their black peers to be in the district's gifted and talented programs, while black students are roughly four times more likely to be held back a grade. That goes back to one of the conversations we had earlier. On average, black students in the home of the University of Virginia lag three and a half grade levels behind their white peers in reading and math. That's from reporting by the New York Times and ProPublica. Public opinion surveys show younger people in America today have generally more favorable opinions of socialism than in the past. A 2016 Gallup poll showed a majority of 18 to 29-year-olds viewed socialism favorably. Why is this happening? U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has an idea. Uh, David, you're going to like this. In a recent interview with conservative media outlet The Daily Signal, DeVos blamed civics classes in American public schools. I thought she would blame bears. (laughs) (laughs) At least there weren't bears. It's David's fault. Uh, To quote Betsy DeVos, students aren't getting the kind of foundation in civics and government that I recall getting as a student in K-12 education. David, can you fix that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's Uh, worried about bears. Yeah, uh, exactly. (laughs) And finally, uh, another hurricane, another decimated school system, Hurricane Michael Ripley through the Florida Panhandle earlier this month with wind speeds topping 150 miles per hour. But there's no global warming. Yeah, so far (laughs) the storm 
has been blamed for the deaths of at least 35 people in Florida and other parts of the South. Schools, as you would expect, have been hit hard. Officials with the Bay District in Bay County, Florida, along the Panhandle, say it could be months or even years before some of their school buildings are back to pre-storm conditions. Bay District's superintendent told CNN that nothing was left of some schools except their foundations. You want to talk about why kids might feel apathetic. Maybe it's because when their schools get ripped apart or shot up or whatever, they just feel like they're not cared for at all. So why do they want to give back to their government? Facts. Yes. Facts. Bring Truth the heat. bomb. Dropping no. the heat. <laughs> yes. Those were some of the headlines of other stories in education that we saw this past week. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Luann, what are your kids into? Well, I'm not cool. And um, <laughs> I just, not at all. And I just, you know, I've just mastered the sort of like jeans that you wear that are kind of like, you know, like the low slung, the kind of, I'm trying to keep myself in shape and everything, and I'm liking these jeans. And here's what I found out. I wear these uh, jeans that are like high-waisted, like when I'm going to paint or whatever. No, I just learned this because I'm not cool. Uh Um, That's cool. No, I didn't know that. I thought when we said mom jeans, which is like the jeans of like my youth, (laughs) that they were were like a thing to... I just remember Tina Fey making fun of them on Saturday Night Live. And I just... How long ago was that? Like like acid-washed, high-waisted, like like, like four-dash jeans. No, I didn't. I'm like, why are you wearing jeans like that? And they're like, because the loose and the high-waisted, that's like... I'm like, the jeans that I wear to paint in? The jeans that I wouldn't be caught dead in? Those are the... I was trying to master the cool look. Glasses that are too big for their face. Oh my God. They love it. This is like a kind of like a hipster 80s kind of throwback. Grandma glasses with mom jeans and (laughs) white Chuck Taylors. It is the style. Again, I'm not cool enough to know that. But you, <laughs> I saw but you were already, but you were cool with your yeah, painter jeans. If you would have <laughs> known that your style, this was is already so cool. meta. It's freaking me out. But I bet if she came to school wearing it, they'd make fun of her. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sad part. Is if she wore really huge glasses and mom jeans, they'd be like, "Oh my god, what are you? Wearing? I'm wearing the same thing you wear." <laughs> Uh, David, what are your kids into? Concussions. Oh, no. That's not good. Yeah, sadly, I've never seen so many kids get concussions. Like cheerleaders, of course, football players, um, kids in car accidents. I mean, like, it's every week it's, oh, this student's on concussion protocol. They can't do this. And And we've talked about this in the past. I mean, they think they're academically, they can't. They can't, they can't do anything. They're, right. they're one of my students out. just got released, actually, yeah, it's from really a concussion, scary. and we can do work. How many like how many days does that last? It changes. I mean, sometimes it can be a couple weeks. Um, I had a kid last year who was on concussion program for about a month or two. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, so it's scary. Um, I had a girl the other day who was she was sleeping in my class, and I have this thing when a kid sleeps in my class, I kick the desk. It's just a thing I do. And so I feel bad about it. Sorry, parents. But, like, this girl was sleeping and I kicked the desk a little bit her friend said no 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 she she hit her like she hit her head her head went through like a windshield and I was like what Ooh. I was like why is she at school yeah. so I sent her to the nurse immediately so like she'd uh, been in a car wreck she'd been in a car accident oh and she, but her parents sent her to school the next day and she hadn't seen the nurse or anything so yeah, do you think do you think it's because 
we're better at diagnosing concussions, that there's more concussions. Oh, probably. Yeah, so. yes. Probably. Yeah, because yeah. you hear old football players talk about like, oh, yeah, I hit and saw stars, and it was just the norm. Like, that was a concussion. But, yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox and David Muhammad. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodep, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our new website, nowronganswerspodcast.com, and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Also, Kansas City teachers, come to our No Wrong Answers happy hour at Beer Station in Waldo on Thursday, November 15th. You can find more info at our Facebook page. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.